Welcome to the Primal Anarchy Podcast, episode number 16. It is January 9th, 2019. I am your host, Kevin Tucker. Uh, and so it's been a little bit since I've done an episode here. Well, the last one, I believe, was in October. Uh, so I apologize, but I've been busy. Uh, I did write a book called The Call of Personality, Ayahuasca, Colonialism, and the Death of a Healer. Uh, that book is out now in, in the ebook version, the PDF version, uh, which is available at blackandgreenreview.org. Uh, and the print book, I have the street date on that is like January 25th. I'm waiting to see when it actually gets finished up in production here, but possibly could be sooner. I'm really proud of this book. It's something I think is really important. Uh, it follows up on what started with a Black and Green podcast, episode number eight, uh, when the murder of Olivia Arivalo, uh, Shipibo healer, uh, who was killed by Sebastian Woodruff, who was a Canadian who was out to to learn about ayahuasca and was involved in the ayahuasca, ayahuasca ecotourism and trying to take that back to Canada and use it for addictions counseling and things like that. Uh, so what ends up happening when you get, when you dig into this is that the reality of the entire situation uh, is pretty insane and it's not different than any of the other history of post-colonial contact uh, with with the Amazon in general and the entire history of the Amazon being based on extraction and in fact the use of ayahuasca itself being a reaction to that history of colonization. Uh, so basically the entire story of extraction, the entire story of civilization was within that one, that moment. And I, I think a lot about civilization and history and the way that we see the world was all wrapped up in that. So it became a book. You're asking yourself, is this the book that I've been talking about on the podcast? It is not. That book is of gods and country. That is a different book. And that one is still well underway. And I'm looking forward to get back, getting back to it uh, and hopefully doing more podcasts or doing podcasts more regularly again. Uh, after I finally get uh, was Black and Green Review number six out, which should be very shortly. But either way, if you listen to this podcast, if you like what I'm doing, uh, or if you're interested in any of these topics in general, then I strongly recommend that book. Again, the Eve book, the PDF version of it is out now at blackandgreenreview.org, and you can pre-order the book, which would be out roughly around January 25th. So... Uh, a number of things to catch up on, and I'm going to try and make it quick because I've got a lot of stuff I want to cover for this episode. Uh, and the thing that you've probably noticed right off the bat is I call this the Primal Anarchy Podcast. Uh, we're doing a bit of, I don't want to say rebranding, but I'm just going to say rebranding uh, with some of the things in terms of black and green, simply because those words just have less meaning to a larger context and aren't as clear. Uh, and I, I want to make sure things that get out there, I want to make sure that if people have questions about where I'm coming from or perspectives that I have or anything like that, they approach it. But I don't want to make it seem like, oh, hey, this is something you have to have, you know, a prerequisite for. Uh, and so in, in keeping with that, Black and Green Podcast is now Primal Anarchy Podcast. Uh, big thing is, is Black and Green Review is now Wild Resistance, a journal of Primal Anarchy. Uh, the name Black and Green Review has been something that's kind of plagued me a bit since almost its inception. The original idea for Black and Green Review was to say we're going to have a journal, and for the most part it was going to continue to be kind of along the lines of my old journal, Species Trader and Green Anarchy. 
uh, in being predominantly focused on green anarchist discussion, anarchist discussion, and then, you know, have enough in there that it, it has meaning for other people, but kind of the idea being, you know, there's a lot of shit we got to sort. So let's have it all in here. Let's have these debates. Let's have this discussion. Uh, the idea of it was also to originally be a much smaller newsprint zine, be focused on having debates within the anarchist world and hosting those debates. It quickly became apparent that that was never going to be what it actually was. In fact, by the first issue, uh, it had already taken the same form that it currently have, which is a book-sized journal, uh, then 128 pages. The first two issues were biannual, uh, both about 128 pages, and then quickly jumped with issue three and issue four. I think we're like 218 pages or something like that. And then an annual publication by number four under five, which is 280 pages or something like that. And now number six coming out a year later, which is in its very final stages. And um, I'll, I'll have some more updates on that soon. I uh, is going to come out or be going to the printer, hopefully within the next week. And I know there's been times where I've said that, but um, as we can see, I got kind of caught up in writing another book and it pushed everything back a bit. So contents are still really good. In fact, there's a lot going on in this issue that I'm really excited about. Uh, and a little more I probably will talk about in a moment here, but I want to make sure that I get all my other announcement kind of stuff covered first. And one of those other things is uh, something I've, I've mentioned on the show, and I've talked about it a little bit on John Zerzan's Anarchy Radio as well, uh, but I'll, I'll put a little bit more out here. Um, and you, you might have noticed that I've been using the term, uh, and we've been using the term primal anarchy considerably more compared to anarcho-primitivist. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, and that is an intentional move, but it's a term that I've been using since I, I believe I went back and looked, but I think it's been a term that I've been using since like 2003 or 2004, uh, and just just kind of increasingly feeling more at home with that term. So the the first essay in Wild Resistance number six, which we are keeping the numbering from Black and Green Review to Wild Resistance the same, so Black and Green Review number five, Wild Resistance number six. Uh, but there's an essay in there called To the Captives that I wrote, and it's about effectively why why these terms matter uh so i'll just read a little bit from that real quickly um all right semantics can be painful but sometimes a little goes a long way for the nearly the past two decades i have loudly called myself an anarcho primitivist i found both grounding in a place within anarcho primitivism it's helped to find a place to learn and fight from but like all things it's important to realize limitations as well is this new ground or are we still on enemy turf as one of anarcho primitivism's primary proponents, it's a fairly comfortable backdrop for me to offer as a shorthand. There's more to what I'm saying than what is in any one essay or talk. anarcho primitivism is my context, but there are a number of drawbacks that continually come up. So let me say this clearly. I am an anarcho primitivist I have no issue with what we have built up and continue to build upon. I will always be an anarcho primitivist The problem isn't the critique. The problem, to the extent there is one, is in the name and its framing, anarcho-primitivism. This is a conversation that has been growing for a while. John Zerzan and I have privately and publicly discussed the relationship of anarcho-primitivism to, anarcho to anarchism more widely, which has been a part of internal discussions among Black and Green Review editors as well. It's felt increasingly apparent that the name is a limitation, 
attaching itself to two different lineages, anarchism and primitivism, neither of which is necessarily fitting in its own right. Anarcho-primitivism becomes the square peg, tethered to a set of rules that are neither applicable nor useful. I've increasingly used another phrase, primal anarchy. As both anarchism and primitivism seem to quickly wither and decay on their own, I'm only finding more reasons to embrace the term entirely. And there's a, quite a bit in this essay, but I'm just going to go ahead and skip to some to the end here. Uh, so one of the aspects of it in, in dropping the term is one uh, anarcho-primitivism makes it so it's a, a subsect of anarchism. Uh, and the idea being that anarchism is is it something distinguishable from anarchy. And I feel like that's something increasingly that we've found is we've looked to understand what it means to be egalitarian, what it means to live without civilization or live without the state or live without a course of power. We can see that those societies have existed all along. Uh, so this primal anarchy is a recognition of really the innate uh, egalitarian nature of nomadic hunter-gatherer societies, and, it, and it's something that continues to live on uh, throughout, you know, in, in various forms throughout even sedentary or semi-sedentary hunter-gatherer cultures and in horticultural societies. But there's a, an important difference in the framework. And for the way that anarcho-primitivism had been set up, it was kind of referential in terms of time and in terms of scales of time. And it had been, you know, held back by the limitation that the word primitivism is just pointing back to, you know, primitive or an earlier time. It doesn't necessarily mean anything as as far as a particular reference point, but for us, you know, as we've been digging to understand the origins of civilization and domestication, that increasingly has meant something specific. That's why we continually talk about domestication. Uh, but people have talked about anarcho-primitivism or have critiqued or, or just kind of tossed about it. Most of the critiques of anarcho-primitivism are just usually... Uh, half-assed jabs uh, and you know while there's some meat to it and everything like that it doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot when you flush it out uh but where where we're coming from with this where we're getting out with this was kind of always having this this idea that people were saying it's like well anarcho-primitivism is kind of on and off as soon as you get this fall from grace this domestication or you get uh, agriculture or civilization then all of a sudden these people are less than human or something like that which is not at all really fitting with what it is that, you know, my anarcho-primitivists, myself and John Zerzan have been saying all along. Uh, but again, I, I think that actually being forced to kind of look at the terms, you realize there's limitations. And a part of it was, too, is that the word primitive, um, I haven't used it without quotes in at least 15 years. Um, I, I don't like it. Uh, there's there's an aspect of the word primitive or the word primitivism that for a long time had a different kind of context in terms of saying, yeah, so according to these scales that were created about the nature of societies and how societies evolve, you've got savage, primitive, barbarians, and then civilized and agrarian. So it was always kind of a, a, a pissed off fuck you kind of thing. Say so it's like, well, yeah, we see what you're doing. We see your hierarchy and we're just inverting it. Fuck yeah, we're the primitive. We're the primitives. Um, I kind of feel like that context has been fading uh, and it makes the term a little bit harder. Uh, so I'm, you know, I've been pushing away and I, I haven't really been using the term and I know most people, most of us haven't. Uh, but I feel like if I'm not comfortable using the term primitive, uh, at least not without 
some kind of context or some kind of like, you know, quotation marks or something like that. Uh, why is primitivism any different? Clearly it's based on the same word, primitive primitivism. So uh, this is, this is a little bit of the ending here. And obviously this is all fleshed out in the entire essay, which will be available in wild resistance number six. And finally, parting with primitive, we recognize what anarcho-primitivism has always told us. Time is a historic creation. One intent on universalizing our displacement from a wild world to justify our decimation of the earth, to see our wild and less domesticated relatives as less than human, and to leave the relics of our ancestry to history in our trailblazing path to our destined future. Time gives us a story, a narrative. It gives us a place within the timeline so we don't look around and wonder how domesticated plants and animals might have changed anything about who we are as individuals, as societies. Primal is not an indicator of where we are, but who we are. It animates the past that history tames in death and conquest. It diminishes our ability to isolate the present from the future. It sees life as a continuum. In upholding primal anarchy, we aren't denying that anarcho-primitive's critique of civilization, but actualizing it. We are no longer anarchists wishing to live in anarchy, but the embodiment of a resistant primal anarchy, one that is capable of biting back. We are agents, not spectators. Our lineage doesn't end with the origins of domestication, but is the ever-present past of refusals and uprisings that have fought and continue to fight domesticators in all their forms. Colonizers win more often because they have the numbers and the technology, cannon fodder to continue throwing in the trenches. Defeat comes with force and subjugation, not in ceding to the narratives of those with power. Most resistance movements since have failed because of their inability to articulate targets. Like revolutionaries, the ideal dictates that you seize the means of production and the reproduction of power. It feeds off of visceral and immediate rage, biting directly at the closest outpost of control. We have been in the unique position where hindsight is buried in plain sight. It is expected that we won't act on a rage, or at least not in unpredictable and uncontrollable ways. On that playing field, anarchists lose. We will never defeat the state or civilization on its own terms or within its own limitations. Primal anarchy shows us another world. The world domestication preys upon and preys against it. Preys against. It is here. It is within and around us. Not another time. Not another place. Like the world that shaped it, it is dynamic, resilient, and resolute. It is us. I see no reason why we should continue to see ourselves any other way. So that's a little bit from To the Captives, which is the leading essay in Wild Resistance number six, which should be out soon, and I will have more information about that on upcoming episodes. Uh, so a couple other things I wanted to get in here quickly before I get on with this episode, which is, uh, I, I don't know if I want to say necessarily requested, but in response to one of my number one requests, which is, what are some books that I should read? Uh, what are some books that I would recommend? And as a book nerd, I can always go on about it for too long and in too much detail. So I'll do my best to give an overview of books that have been influential for me, books that I know have been important within the anti-civilization uh, milieu and rewilding world, uh, and go from there. But first off, I wanted to just say, if you are not following what is currently happening with Eugenia Stoughton, um, it, it needs to get attention, it needs to get a support immediately. This camp has been going on, and it is a, an indigenous camp uh, against a fracking pipeline being built through what is now what is considered uh, northern British Columbia, but is unceded land. So there is actually an article in the UN, uh, Rights of Indigenous People, I forget exactly the term for, for what it is, talking about not uh, forcibly removing 
indigenous habitants from their own lands. And these are unceded lands. They have set up an encampment to block the pipeline. It's been going on for years, and the entirety of it is both exhilarating and just um, mind-numbingly insane to think that these are things that still have to happen, you know, supposedly so many years after a colonization is said to have happened. It's, it's an ongoing event. It's a constant event. The frontier still exists in these places. And here, despite everything that's been thrown at indigenous peoples, there's still resistance and there's still this camp that uh, is set on trying to continue traditional ways of living in the face of colonization. And so it's a really powerful thing. And the RCMP have been forcibly removing people. I believe 20 people were arrested yesterday. So I think January 7th, it's not quite the 9th. Um, but pay attention if you can support, if you can help out, they definitely need it. Uh, so look into that. I know some media, and I believe Unicorn Riot have a good bit on there, but uh, Indigenous Land Resistance, sorry, the Anti-Colonial Land Defense, and also the Indigenous Anarchist Federation, uh, both pretty good sources to follow in terms of what's going on there and what's happening. Uh, so give your support, and there are a lot of pipeline struggles going on, and I'm hoping to be able to cover that a lot more on the podcast, uh, but it's something that's been falling behind. And also the um, big news here. So in uh, since since the last episode, there was the killing of John Chow on North Sentinel Island. Uh, he's a 26-year-old missionary who belonged to the All Nations Missionary Group, which is based out of Kansas. Uh, and they do this church planning experience thing. It's this, this exact kind of contact. And they the missionary group, All Nations, has made a statement saying that what he had done was illegal, which is part of the no contact policy that's set up in terms of the Sentinel Islands. Uh, but uh, you know, this is this is what they do. This is what missionaries do. This is what they've always sought to do. Uh, they believe they can just you know kind of waltz in, preach the word of God, and then are we given by all means? He should have known he was going to die. But as you know, it becomes obvious, uh, or it definitely will become obvious, especially with of gods is the, the historic moment in which uh, Nate Saint and four other missionaries were killed by the Rurani in the 1950s, uh, which kind of kicked off the new missionary movement, uh, which was fueled mostly by smaller planes capable of flying into remote areas uh, and then flown in and used running through and off of old oil fields and old oil exploration fields, and they typically uh, owned the planes and would fly oil executives around or oil prospectors and things like that this is entirely tied to you know the post-world war ii version of colonialism as it was happening uh but the the killing of nate saint by the rani uh hunter gatherers of ecuador uh set off this whole movement because of the idea that you know these people were martyred and this showed their dedication and it was used to ignite the base really of evangelicals and and you know insane christians um we're seeing a little bit of that in terms of Chow being killed, but like Chow and like Saint, you know, these people hadn't actually planned to die. And in the in the killing of, of Nate Saint and the four other missionaries that were with him, uh, they had actually tried to radio for help. That one of them had brought a gun with him, uh, and Chow had had written in his diary before he was killed, um, you know, kind of like his his plans for what he had wanted to do, and he he would. He had actually been shot at by the Sentinelese, who have who've shot at 
virtually everybody who's come out there and for very good reasons for hundreds of years now. Uh, this is this is a long-standing kind of tradition, and the Sentinel Islands are uh, under under India rule, uh, and there's a lot of really great work that's been done, and I'm actually going to get to it a bit here with the book recommendations. But the history here is is really fucked. I mean, it's really difficult, and it's it's all about you know colonizers attempting to settle and pacify. Uh, resisting hunter-gatherer populations and in the process completely decimating their populations and creating settlement positions or settlement situations. But the Sentinel the Sentinelese live on the North Sentinel Island, which is a relatively small island, but it's hosted the exact same size population for of, of hunter-gatherers for hundreds or, or thousands, potentially. I don't know how long it goes back. How many years of uh, subsistence as, as hunter-gatherers on this island? Uh, and it's it's a small place. It's pretty amazing, and there's a lot of amazingness there. So the idea that there this missionary had gone in and he was going to try and convert them, it's not something that's new, and it's not even something that's new just to missionaries. Uh, and as uh, a number of people have, have talked about and dealt with in detail, uh, you know, it wasn't just missionaries trying to make this contact. It was anthropologists. It was government administrators, which typically go hand in hand but in this case it's a it's a little bit different uh, but you know there's there's reasons for why that no contact policy has been put in place and even Chow's bodies the the removal of it has caused a, a whole other kind of stir uh, just because he he is a pathogen just sitting there on the beach and he had always been a pathogen that's the entire reason for the no contact policy uh, outside of you know, sovereignty and autonomy, which, you know, governments only care about so much. Uh, but it's, it's a pretty crazy issue. And I I've, I did think it was kind of a good thing. I'm kind of glad within hours of uh, the news getting out about Chow being killed, I'd gotten messages from well over 20 people pretty immediately, which made me feel kind of good. I, I don't mind being the anti-missionary guy that gets notified about these things so that's good but at the same time i mean as much as i want to say there's enthusiasm about the fact that a missionary got killed um no, nobody wants to do this i mean the the hunter gatherers and the indigenous people that are are dealing with missionaries you know nobody gets joy from killing that person and like what i was getting at was he had been shot at by an arrow um prior to having been killed and the arrow actually went into his bible uh so he he knew exactly what he was getting into, but he was still you know believed in God. So he, what kind of crazy shit does that person believe in? Well, apparently thinking that they're not going to be killed, despite the fact that every single piece of history, every single piece of communication, or anything about what has happened with people who tried to invade these islands indicated most likely he was going to be killed. Uh, so I'm going to deal with this more in of gods and country. Um, it will be in there, but in the meantime, uh, there's going to be a good bit about it in Wild Resistance number six, uh, particularly two interviews, hopefully two interviews, at least one is done, is done with uh, Madhurasri Mukherjee, uh, who's the author of The Land of the Naked People, which is a book I'm going to talk about shortly, uh, but both her and an anthropologist Sita Venkatshwar, uh, amazing people. Their work is really, really great. Uh, and there are articles you can look up about from both of them uh, about John Chow, and there's an entire group on the Anaman Nicobar Islands that have been 
documenting and, and talking about the condition of the islands, the contact of hunter-gatherers and the consequences of it, but also the consequences of climate change on these islands with uncontacted hunter-gatherers. And a lot of that came into the fold increasingly after the tsunami hit in 2004, which was devastating for these islands, but the hunter-gatherers had actually not suffered any losses. They had gone to higher grounds. Uh, and so... I, I encourage checking those out and seeing what you can find. I'll read a little bit from this one on the Scientific American blog uh, from Matt Husry called The American Killed by Asian Islanders Hope to Save Their Souls. And it's a bit of an overview. It's not a particularly long article. Uh, but she talks about, in, in her book, Land of the Naked People, which, again, I'll get to, uh, the, the fact that she got involved with uh, attempted contact with Jarwa which was happening in the late 90s. Um, and so she was on a boat and had, had been approaching the shore and kind of came to it and was like, we can't do this. This isn't right. And had turned back. So she has actual experience with this and actually CETA does as well. Uh, but I'll just read this last paragraph. I too approached the island in a boat in 1998, spotting from a distance a canoe in which two figures stood fishing. Others on the beach observed the encounter. Seeing us, the fishers moved back towards their shore, whereupon we left. I regret that visit, even if for some minutes I violated their privacy and tranquility. Unlike Chow, however, it did not occur to me that I had any wisdom to impart to them. What can I, a representative of a civilization that, within the span of a few hundred years, has destabilized the biosphere of an entire planet, have to offer a people who have thrived since the dawn of humankind on these tiny islands? Is it we who have something to teach the Sentinelese, or they us? Again, it's a longer article, and both of them have, Sita and, and uh, Ben Husri have written some excellent stuff in general. What about this specifically that I strongly encourage people to look into? Uh, and again, I'll get into it more, and I'm sure I'll cover it more on the podcast, but in the meantime, can't not say anything about that situation. It was important. So before I get to the book recommendations and everything here, I just want to make a quick shout out uh, and let people know how much their support actually helps out. So the encouragement I got in terms of episode number eight in particular, uh, but a number of other episodes about the podcast and the content of it, um, but about Ari Valo, about the stuff that's happened with the Ache, uh, has been really helpful for me. It's been really good and it's been encouraging uh, and is one of the reasons that I ended up writing Call of Personality. Um, that support is awesome, but it's really important in these times to help spread the word about all these things because the original channels we had had for distribution, for acknowledging, or for even getting the word out about the projects we're doing have all completely dissipated. Uh, very few publications actually left in, in the radical world uh, and a lot of what happens on Facebook and everything like that, if you want to get anything noticed, you got to pay. And of course you have to get on Facebook and post it and it's all a huge pain in the ass. So the most important thing you can do if you're like what we're doing, if you care about what we're doing is to talk to your friends about it in real life and on the internet, if you wish, uh, but spread the word as much as possible. But if you can help out with money and with buying books and buying shirts, whatever else that I've to offer at blackandgreenreview.org hugely helpful but if you can support the podcast if you support what we're doing or support what I'm doing that goes a really long way um, 
in fact, uh, we actually have a new website here is wildresistance.org. Uh, so, you know, the websites and stuff like that keep kind of expanding and it's, they're expensive. Uh, so people who helped out on Patreon, which is a monthly donation, that has been vastly helpful. And I really, truly appreciate that. And if you're able to give, if you go on to primalanarchy.org, which is the webpage for this podcast, uh, there are links for donating through Patreon or donating through PayPal, which you can do one-time donation or continuous. But buying the books, spreading the word, that all helps a ton. Uh, and if you if you have your own podcast, you have your own journal or something like that, you have a blog, you want to do interviews, you can contact me at uh, through the web pages, uh, primalanarchy.org and wildresistance.org. Both have contact information and everything like that. You can go on there and contact. All that stuff helps tremendously. And in that spirit, I'm going to go ahead and start going through some of these book recommendations. So uh, the books that have been important for kind of anti-civ, anarcho-primitivism, or green anarchy... There's no genuine consensus. There's kind of some books here that are uh, generalized books that I think that, you know, particularly in the early 2000s, everybody who was involved with Green Anarchy was talking about you had to read these, the book clubs and things like that. We're focusing on these. I have no real organization for most of the other stuff. So it's not a matter of the books I recommend the most, but these are books that I'm most likely to recommend. recommend about particular subjects uh, and some generalized kind of ones. And uh, I'll talk about it a little more when I get to anthropology. Some of the stuff that I read is really fucking nerdy. And um, I I read a ton. uh, And I have a lot of books. I read a lot of books. And I read a lot of articles and things like that. And I always kind of hope that my writing is a way to distill that information and I hold myself to a very high standard in terms of all that and everybody at Wild Resistance is, is kind of with the same mindset uh, and you can you can see that as well in the book reviews that we've run in Black and Green Review and Wild Resistance uh, they're generally very detailed and even some of the books that I've covered in even the newest issue but in previous issues are also going to show up in this list today um, so that said uh, you know, it doesn't mean that a book that I recommend is something that I'm saying I agree with 100%. If I agree with it 100%, I'll tell you about it. Rarely is that the case. Uh, but otherwise, it's just a book that I'd gotten something from, whether or not the actual author of that book had intended for that to be the case. Not most of these people are going to write for an anarcho-primitivist or a primal art anarchist audience. But as I'm increasingly seeing some of the people in these these kind of like lateral sections or lateral interests and things like that are actually pretty shockingly interested in it once it does actually come out. That said, I am going to start with the most obvious starting point, which is John Zerzan. Uh, John has been at this for a long time. If you're listening to the podcast and you have not been familiar with John's work, you should be familiar with John's work. Uh, just to kind of give a little context, I'm not going to go into this much detail for everybody, uh, the anarchist movement for a long time had been kind of a, uh, how do I put it? There had been a lot of universalism within it or something like that. Uh, you know, in the, in the nineties in particular, there's a lot of anarchist ethic that was really just kind of an ethos. 
uh, and the default kind of became this weird backwash between green anarchist thinking and red anarchist thinking. So red anarchists being traditional thinking green anarchists, um, as would become the case early on in the 2000s, being particularly or specifically against civilization uh, during the 90s. And that was earlier, that was not necessarily the case. But uh, as Green Anarchy magazine spread out, that became that became obvious. Uh, John Zerzan was one of the main voices throughout that whole time. Uh, and he remains one of the strongest voices. He's an editor of uh, Wild Resistance, and he's a really close friend of mine. His work is vital. And in, in that time, when in the 90s, when it was kind of floating around, and I could still consider myself an anarcho-syndicalist while being anti-industrialism, pro-Earth and animal liberation, and working with indigenous resistance movements, not necessarily having to account for the fact that industrialism was against everything else that I was fighting for. Um, and it was really Seattle in 1999, uh, the riots, the N30 riots that brought green anarchy to the forefront. And at the time I'd been really dealing with or involved with like deep ecology, uh, earth first and ecofeminism and coming to the realization that agriculture was a huge part of the problem. If we're talking about anarchism, we're really generally talking about being against the state, being against government. So the distinguishment between anarchists generally is going to come down to what is power, what is authority, what is control? Is it just a state or is it civilization? Is it domestication? Uh, and kind of an oh shit moment about all that stuff going into agriculture. And then I found John's work uh, in anarcho-primitivism and immediately I got Against Civilization, Elements Refusal, and Future Primitive, and I read all those books like right off the bat, and I started writing John immediately, and that's when I started Coalition Against Civilization, Black and Green not long after. So I owe a lot to John, and I think the entirety of anti-civilization movement is undoubtedly uh, tied to him. So which book to start with? He's written a number of books. Um, Future Primitive is always going to have a pretty strong place with me. Origins is a book that I put out under black and green press in 2009. And that's, or I believe all of his origins essays, which is kind of his most noted work. Um, all those essays are in that book. The book is almost sold out. I do have some copies left at black and green review.org and the ebook is available on there as well. Against civilization uh, the second edition of it came out in 2005. I believe the first was 1999. Uh, and a number of recommendations I make are also not coincidentally in this book, in the second edition. Uh, I helped edit the second edition, and there might actually become a third, which I think would be a really good thing. Uh, it's a good overview of a lot of very different factions uh, in thought critical of civilization intentional or not but i think i think again civilization is is generally considered a really good starting point if you want to get kind of a, a bigger swath about those ideas as far as john's writing itself goes uh why hope is really good he also has a, in a a new book that came out this last year which was a people's history of civilization uh and that's a collection another collection of essays that covers some of John's more historical aspects of resistance to civilization and how civilization has expanded between origins and a people's history of civilization. 
you've got a really good base. But, I mean, outside of that, running on emptiness, elements of refusal. Uh, I'm, I'm even blanking. He's put out a good bit of books. Uh, they're also translated in a lot of languages, too, which is good. So John's work obviously gets my strongest recommendation. And, of course, anything that comes out on Black and Green Press is something that I would consider a strong recommendation. I've got my own books. Uh, the second edition of For Wildness and Anarchy should be coming out in 2019. I'm going to be working on that. Uh, Call of Personality, of course, is about to come out, and my book, Gathered Remains, came out last year, uh, and there will be a lot more on that front. And speaking of, so my one of my biggest influences is Freddie Perlman. Uh, I put out Anything Can Happen, which is a, a collection of his essays from the 1960s up till his death in 1985. And uh, this is, anything can happen is really good, and some of the essays in it are absolutely amazing. Uh, I I find that there's there's a couple in particular: anti-Semitism in the Beirut pogrom, and the continuing appeal of nationalism, are two essays that shouldn't have aged as well as they have. Um, and as we're seeing with the world literally burning and everything going to to hell and back. Uh, it's sadly very crucial, and I've, I find myself rereading those essays often and also telling people constantly that they need to read them. But his main book, Against History Against Leviathan, uh, is probably my favorite book of all time. So this came out in 1983. Uh, every time I go back to find a quote from it, I end up reading 100 pages or so at a time. Uh, it's basically a narrative version or an oral history version of civilization. Uh this book is awesome. I do carry it through Black and Green. Uh, it's blackandgreenview.org. You can find it on there. But, uh, you know, Black and Red has a little bit wider distribution. You should check it out. I strongly recommend that book. And then uh, some of the other ones. Shellis Glendenning's My Name is Shellis, and I'm in Recovery from Western Civilization. Uh, the book that came after this, Off the Map, is also really good. And I think Off the Map... As, as a book goes, as the writing goes, I think it might even be a little bit better. But in terms of the content, My Name is Shellis and I'm in Recovery from Western Civilization is another book that continues to kind of get more and more respect from me. Uh, this book came out in 1994, and I, or I should say I'm getting more and more from. And it's a book that talks about domestication and really understanding it from a personal place. Uh, but, you know, it's... it's very intensive. It's, it's very well researched and documented, and it's coming from the point of view of eco psychology. So, talking about uh, domestication as trauma and something I'm kind of constantly coming up against, and I, I really feel all the time more and more that this book is this book is probably my number two recommendation. It's a really strong one, really good one. Uh, and right along the line with that, Paul Shepard's books. Paul Shepard, actually, he also wrote a number of books. He died in, I believe, 98, might be 96. So a number of the collections came out afterwards. Uh, his stuff is really important. Nature and Madness, which is his first book, is amazing. And it's right in line with, with Shellis's My Name is Shellis, and Recovery from Western Civilization. Uh, talking about which uh, a concept that doesn't get enough attention, which is neoteny. Is the idea that domestication runs us uh, and stunts the development process that we have as individuals. Uh, so in a lot of discussion that happens about the self and the other, 
there's kind of different questions about what it means to be an individual in a hunter-gatherer society versus what it means to be one in a post-industrial consumer society in a globalized world. Uh, nobody has has dealt with it better than Paul Shepard and then Shell Sklendening has followed up on a lot of that and kind of modernized it. Uh, his books are really good. So I, Nature and Madness, I kind of go back and forth about which ones I recommend the most. Nature and Madness, though, lately, uh, I feel like it's been, in, for fairly obvious reasons, Neotony is becoming an increasingly obvious and important point to, to touch on. Uh, but I'll go ahead and say that coming home to the Pleistocene and Traces of an Omnivore, two different uh, collections of his, his work that came out uh, right after he died, they both get pretty high marks for me. Uh, and I'll also say that in terms of books that were very formative for me, Susan and Griffin's Woman in Nature uh, is, is another one that's awesome. And it's, it's in, in terms of writing, uh, the, it's, it's a combination of like kind of poetry and prose and, uh, you know, documentation. It's the first time I'd seen something that had poetry with citations in it. Uh, and, and in terms of form, that's meant a lot for me. It's been an important boy for me, but I think that in terms of content, uh, and, and in terms of understanding civilization and agriculture and patriarchy, it was just a really important book for me. It's another one I recommend highly and often. Um, uh, some other books from the generalized anti-civ kind of classics. So these are books that were talked about a lot. Um, and I, I don't know if they're read quite as much. David Watson, Guns and Mega Machine. These are all, I think almost all these essays were from Fifth Estate. Um, I'm guessing, I think in the 70s and 80s, but they go up to the 90s. I believe they go back to the 70s. Uh, David Watson kind of went off the deep end as far as things go after this and responded to deep ecology. I'm not really as interested in, in much else that he's written, but in terms of introductory kind of text and, and really crucial stuff in terms of setting up the anti-civ movement, uh, this, this book, Against the Mega Machine, is, is his best essays on the matter, and I think still very, very relevant to anybody who's interested in kind of a generalized anti-civ perspective. And there's that. Going right back through some of the uh, 90s, 2000s best playbook or playlist for Green Anarchists. In the Absence of the Sacred, The Failure of Technology, and the Survival of Indian Nations by Jerry Mander was also the author of Four Arguments Against or for the Elimination of the Television, which is definitely a, a book that got a lot more wider readership, but this book is still really good. Um, comparing kind of techno-futurism versus the conquest of civilization of indigenous societies. Um, this book is, uh, yeah, I think it's a really good one. And it's one I've been planning on reading again. It's been quite wait a while I, I kind of flip back through it often and i apologize i know this microphone is a, a little more powerful so you can you're gonna have to tolerate the sound of me flipping through books as i do this but for some insane reason i gotta hold on to books when i'm talking about books third thing i don't know uh so yeah this book came out in 91 still a really good book I, i've been planning on rereading it and also frederick turner's beyond geography the western spirit against the wilderness so this book came out in 1983, is reprinted in 1994, or at least my version of it, is a really good book in terms of understanding civilization and the, the pathology of civilization 
as it impacted people as they were expanding into the new world uh, with colonization. Um, it is awesome. Also, it really undermines, it's a really good follow-up to uh, Paul Shepard's work in understanding Christianity. So let's read a quick quote here just to give an idea. Christianity, as we have seen, had a unique orientation to the world, an orientation that emphasized the capacity of rational thought to render Christians lords of all earthly creation. In the age of exploration, Christians of all nationalities and persuasions were united in conception of the earth as a divinely created thing, there for enjoyment, instruction, and profit of man. I will say this about this book. Um, it also is one of those books that I read it, and I immediately was sitting there on on mornings and the weekdays, or I'm sorry, in the weekends, waiting for some Christian to knock on my door and tell me about Jesus Christ. I had a couple choice things to say about religion and Christianity in particular at the time. So that said, uh, it's a great book. I love it. Another one of my ones that I, I go through to find a quote or something like that, and I end up reading a whole bunch of. And yeah, it's a really awesome book. Was generally being read considerably, but has kind of fallen out a little bit. And hopefully this will kick that back up a little. Uh, Stanley Diamonds in Search of the Primitive, a Critique of Civilization. Uh, this book is fucking awesome. In terms of anthropologists, and I'll get back to this, there was a collection of, of you know radical Marxists that were involved in anthropology and uh, something I'm going to talk about, ethnohistory, which is the combination of anthropology and history, that followed up with Julian Stewart, who's an anthropologist, uh, who, who did a lot of his main work in the 1950s and had kind of been a part of the re-envisioning re of what it meant to be a hunter-gatherer. And in particular, all of his students uh, followed up on that. And that was one of the most profound things that happened in social sciences for a long time uh, in anthropology and history. And this is potentially one of the most uh, reflective pieces of literature to come from that entire movement and it's a it's a book written in a way that you know it doesn't it doesn't come across as academic at all it's not written for an academic audience even though he was an academic um and it's it's just every time i go back through it and find something from it it's like man they were they're really onto something i also found it interesting um going through some of this other stuff and i've talked about it on the podcast and i talk about it often in writing, uh, is primal anarchy versus primitive communism. And even though he was a communist, uh, he, he never used the word primitive communism. He said primitive communalism, which is considerably different than primitive communism. Uh, but there's just a number of things in this book. And again, you know, there's the whole issue with the word primitive, but I mean, he's again, part of that whole world of saying, you know, Yes, we're, we're for the primitive. We're, we're inverting your values, and that's where it's at. Uh, in terms of the Marxist side of it, I think that it was also really good to read some of these parts. Um, again, going through all this a number of times, it kind of understands, like, why, why did they take a Marxist viewpoint and get so far with it and understand the nature of civilization and, and to actually target Civilization, again, the subtitle of the book is A Critique of Civilization. And Eric Wolf, who is somebody I'll get back to, is a really important person for me. Um, he wrote the foreword for it. And, um, you know, I mean, there's there's really no question in the writing that these people are 
attacking a civilization. And from Eric Wolf's introduction, and this is a quote I had actually used on the back cover of Black and Green Review number five. We live in what we pridefully call civilization, but our laws and machines have taken on a life of their own. They stand against our spiritual and physical survival. So, I mean, they're, you know, for being Marxist compared to virtually every other Marxist, they, they went a much further direction, which I guess you could say the exact same thing about green anarchists and primal anarchists within the anarchist tradition. But I, I found it interesting going back to this and seeing that there is kind of a, a, a telling in here about Diamond Wang anarchism versus Marxism. And seemed to fall back on Marxism because he looked at anarchism and he saw extreme individualism and he didn't find that at all liberating, which is a strand of anarchism that I also have no interest in. Uh, so makes a little bit more sense. And um, yeah, there's also touching on that. Uh, a lot of kind of anti-civ overview stuff tends to categorize anti-civ or anarcho-primitivist or primal anarchist stuff within a post-left um, aspect of uh, anarchist, whatever, anarchist history, uh, which is a word that, and a classification that both John Zerzan and I have outright rejected. Um, not really interested in it and have never defined ourselves as, you know, leftist enough to say that well, who we are is defined by being post left, but also because the post left anarchist world is that rampant individualism and egoism and stuff that's not very interesting to me or at all liberatory so uh another one i'll just go through this one quickly clive ponning's green history of the world this is another one that was very widely read this book is really good it's a an ecological kind of perspective of the world of civilization a really good overview and a lot of details in it as well i still use it pretty regularly um as a reference just anytime going through history stuff or trying to place things historically. Uh, another big one that this one is, is really awesome. Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, the old way, a story of the first people. Elizabeth Marshall Thomas had lived with the Bushmen, uh, with her family. Her father is John Marshall. He's an anthropologist. Uh, uh, sorry, her brother was John Marshall. Uh, and her parents were both, uh, anthropologists. We had Lorna and they had done a lot of, pretty classical anthropological research and she had grown up in Bushman societies and has since grown to write a number of books and, and really kind of hone that perspective in terms of an anthropology book that covers a lot of ground or is written for very wide audiences uh, and covers a lot of very anti-civilization kind of perspectives and views and, and does it really well. This book is a very high recommendations and uh I, yeah, I, I strongly recommend it. Um, I, I don't know how she would necessarily feel about being considered in an anti-civ classics kind of roundup, but I'm putting it there anyways, and I have for some time. So another one that gets a strong recommendation. All right, I'm going to pick up speed here a little bit, going through this stuff here. Uh, so from here it gets a little spottier in terms of how I have things kind of categorized. Uh, but doing it in a way that hopefully makes sense and uh, everything else. Also, I do have some requests that I will sprinkle in here that I've gotten from people about books that they wanted to see and uh, or hear more about. I'll kind of pepper that in a little. Uh, in terms of collapse books, uh, some stuff that's really important. Uh, 
the collapse of complex societies, Joseph Tainer. In terms of understanding collapse, Tainter is definitely one of the most important people to be reading. Uh, so the collapse of complex societies, talking about uh, diminishing returns, so civilizations collapse, as he says, not simply because they, they run out of a resource or something like that, but because they get to the point where you're putting in so much energy to maintain it and you're not getting that return back. Uh, and it's, it's an important way of looking at civilization as something that has been kind of glossed over in our world because of the economics of our society. You know, the ghost economy of, of credit kind of give the the appearance that we're we're still going even though, you know, we're, we don't have what we, what we think we do. Uh, so... Yeah, this is this is a book that is not going to age at all. In fact, it's going to continually be shown to be more true and more important over time. Uh, and it is, you know, not not necessarily forgiving of of the civilization that we all live within. Uh, so it's going to read from it, but I will pass on that. It's an important book. It's worth reading. And right alongside with that, William Catton's Overshoot. So this book came out in 1980, and this is another one that's really important. And so it's it's an ecological book, and the subtitle of it is The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. Uh, and it's a book that talks about carrying capacity, which is how much uh, life any given bioregion can support. And the overshoot aspect is when that amount is exceeded, and it leads to die-off, or kind of in ecological terms, a correction. Uh, so he talks about it in terms of like you know this being an ecological process and it's something that happens uh, fairly often, but then you know the same rules apply to industrial industrial civilizations. Uh, and both books talk a lot about soil and civilization, which is kind of a persistence theme uh, amongst uh, any kind of ecological understanding of collapse. But it's an important one, and it's a, it's brought up for a number of times for a reason. So overshoot. Collapse of Complex Societies. And then another one which I'm, I'm big on is Brian Fagan's Floods, Famines, and Emperors. Uh, and you'll notice with my, my list here that the omissions sometimes are as important as the ones that are included. Uh, this came out in 1999, uh, same time as Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, which I'm, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a book that's got some good things about it, but I'm not horribly big on Jared Diamond. Uh, and so... Uh, I genuinely feel that if this book had been read more or instead of Guns, Germs, and Steel, I think the kind of discussion that had happened um, around Guns, Germs, and Steel, and particularly when it came out, when it came down to um, Collapse, which is the book of his that came out, I think around 2004 or something like that, uh, that discussion would have been a lot deeper, a lot better, a lot more important. Because this book gets into a lot of huge things. It talks about ENSO cycles. It talks about uh, weather patterns and the collapse of civilizations and how all these things tie together. And it's another book, too, that you know I think pushes this view that's really important, which is it's not just a matter of civilizations collapsing because of one reason or another. It's the combination, as, as Tainter would say, the diminishing returns. Uh, so in this in that regard... Yeah, this book is still really important, even though it was came out in 1999, and obviously, even comparatively, uh, some of the climate information is going to be even more horrible. 
uh, pretty pretty insane. So um, yeah, this is another one that's up there in my recommendations. I'm flipping through, trying to find a quote real quick that I pull aside, and I'm not finding it. Here we go. Uh, today, with the responsibilities of a pharaoh or an Inca god-king, are dwarfed by those of a modern president or prime minister in a world beset by uncontrolled population growth, deeply ingrained poverty, potential food storage shortages, and a new and unknown quality, humanly caused global warming. Now we contemplate the fate of not a minor state or empire spread out over several ecological zones, but of a global civilization. And there was another quote here as well to the effect that it's not one thing that ever causes civilization collapse, but the, the consequence of a number of things compounded and uh, that pushes them overboard. So if you're looking to understand collapse, what we mean by collapse, talking about collapse in general, those three books are a really good combination. Floods, Famines, and Emperors by Brian Fagan, who's written a ton of books uh, and a, a number of ones that also follow up on this. Overshoot by William Catton, and Joseph, Joseph Tainer's Collapse of Complex Societies. All right, a couple more Michael Clare Resource Wars. And Michael Clare has written a number of books that are right in line with this. And a lot of them are all really good. This one came out in 2001. So it was written mostly before September 11th. Uh, and the ensuing wars that came from it. So I picked this book in particular kind of for that reason, because in this book he dedicates, uh, I think, three chapters to oil in particular. Uh, but he talks about energy, he talks about water, he talks about timber, he talks about minerals. Uh, you know, really just pointing out the importance of if, how much resources have impacted, or how much resources are an underlying part about the, the growth and maintaining of civilizations and what it takes to maintain them. So this one's really good, and I think everything that he's, pretty much everything he's had to follow it up with that I've read, and I think there have been like three or four books, uh, have all been really good. Uh, but I, I like this one for that reason, that it became apparent almost immediately after just how much oil played into that. And following up on that, Richard Heinberg, The Party's Over. Heinberg's written a lot of books that are really good, and he's written a lot that are just kind of progressive fodder. Um stuff I'm, I'm not too interested in. In fact, uh, his first book, Measurements and Visions of Paradise, at the time he had written and had been contributing to Green Anarchist out of the UK. Uh, it talks about anarcho-primitivism and things like that. It's, you know, it's a pretty good book. Um, and uh, he was interviewed in Black and Green Review 3, I think. Um, but a lot of his work is, is really good. But the parties over in particular. Uh, this is one about peak oil and the end of cheap abundant energy is a really good one. I also really like Blackout, which is a more recent one about fracking. Uh, so those are my recommendations on that front. All right, on to technology now. The books that are most fitting for you sitting there listening to this probably on your phone, maybe even in your car, maybe on a bus, who knows. Uh, Lewis Mumford has been a huge influence for me. The two Myth of the Machine books are ones that I consider essential. And I, again, even though these books came out in the 60s, 
Uh, there is a lot he got right. There are things that changed in science that, and acknowledgments that, that changed, particularly about the way hunter-gatherers had lived. But there's so much more of these books that just is never going to date particularly badly. Um, I, I love, and I, I cite it quite often, if you've read much of my writing, you'll no doubt be familiar with it, but uh, the fact that Lewis Mumford had talked about how the original Mega Machine had been comprised of human parts. And that is something that I think is hugely important, really, really necessary. Mumford is another person who has written a number of books. Um, Techniques and Civilization, I, I go back to fairly often. Um, other ones that I'd recommend, I'd, you know, there, there's some good ones. City and History has some interesting aspects of it. And, you know, there's just a lot of books that he's written. They went from the 1920s on. Uh, but the Myth and Machine books, the two of them, are the Pentagon of Power and uh, Techniques and Human Development are two that I think are really essential. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, another old one, Gutenberg Galaxy. This book has aged very well, and I think that the more we look into technology, the more we understand the impacts of technology you can really see how much just the written word had actually changed the way that we interact with the world. And McLuhan didn't always get it quite as strong as he did in this particular book, but uh, this book is another one that I kind of find myself going back to quite often and finding more and more of it with and seeing more and more correlations between different kinds of technology. Uh, first version came out in 1962. You know, it's pretty easy to find. Um, some of the formatting in the earlier versions is kind of weird, uh, but it's worth reading. And following up on that is another one of my more recent, more recent book that I constantly find myself recommending, Nicholas Carr's The Shallows. Uh, he's got some other books that are, are really good. The Big Switch um, was good. Glass Cage was not as good as these two, but it still has some really good aspects of it. But The Shallows, I think, is is kind of like, I call it the silent spring of the internet age. Uh, what the internet is doing to our brains is the byline on it. Uh, so talking about neuroplasticity, talking about the impacts of technology on your brain and the way that your brain is, is kind of opportunistic in ways. So it's willing to offset functions really kind of gives a really good sense about how much impact technology has. I would consider this Require reading for anybody with an internet connection, which, because you're listening to a podcast, means you. So, take that for what it's worth, and I'm sure you'll hear me talk about it again if you continue listening. A little bit of a sidetrack, Zygmunt Bauman's Modernity and the Holocaust. Uh, This book, of all of Bauman's books, I think is is definitely the best. It came out in 1989, uh, and it talks about how the Holocaust and the nature of the civilizing process and the nature of civilization, that it wasn't uh, the the organization of mass murder wasn't a matter of being exceptional in terms of civilization, but being a part of the technological process and part of the civilizing process. Uh, and it's really good. Um, I, I strongly recommend this. This one was another one that was kind of in the general... Uh, anti-civ discussions uh, and I, I think it should be and it had very good reason to be uh, 
another newer one, not not quite where these other ones are at, but it's it's one that I reviewed in Black and Green Review. I think it was four or five. Uh, Franklin Foer's World Without Mind, uh, the existential threat of big tech, and it's kind of a follow-up to Car, but also talking about how uh, the the transfer of knowledge through the internet as a platform as a means of relaying information flattens and cheapens all all things into content uh and really enforces alienation uh in that regard it's really good he's got a lot of stuff in here that i had read about uh the nature of you know authors and kind of the value of knowledge and things that i'd I'd kind of written off a little bit more whenever i had read it uh but ever since i've i feel it's become increasingly true especially while trying to actually do print books and a print journal in a world that is increasingly technological um, so it gets my recommendation um, I don't yeah. again it's another one of those books I don't stand behind everything he says all the time but I do think it's an important book uh, and speaking of this is another one James Bridle dark, The New Dark Age Technology and the End of the Future uh, I actually just read this book and it came out very recently it came out from verso uh i was really impressed with this book uh talking about the impacts of climate change on technology and the problems that technology faces and the infrastructure of technology faces as climate change worsens and how climate change is making all those things worse it's a really well done book you know i of course reading through all this stuff and again the common disclaimer you're going to hear particularly tonight uh could have pushed further, could have kept pushing it continually further, but I, at the same time, this is this is all really good stuff, and so just to read a few paragraphs of it real quick, because I think this is like a, a really essential point, and hopefully we'll get some people stoked on reading it. Our thirst for data, like our thirst for oil, is historically imperialist and colonialist, and tied tight to uh, capitalist networks of exploitation. The most successful empires have always progamated themselves through a selective visibility, that of the subaltern up to the center. Data is used to map and classify the subject of imperialist intention, just as the subjects of empires were forced to register and name themselves according to the dictates of their masters. The same empires first occupied, then exploited the natural reserves of their possessions, and the networks they created live on in the digital infrastructures of the present day. The information superhighway follows the networks of telegraph cables laid down to control old empires. While the fastest data routes from West Africa to the world run, still run through London, so the British-Dutch multinational Shell continues to exploit the oil of the Nigerian Delta. The subsea cables girding South America are owned by corporations based in Madrid, even as countries there struggle to control their, oil, their own oil profits. Fiber optic connections funnel financial transactions by way of offshore territories quietly retained through periods of decolonization. Empire is mostly rescinded territory, only to continue its operation at the level of infrastructure, maintaining its power in the form of the network. Data-driven regimes repeat the racist, sexist, and oppressive policies of their antecedents because their biases and attitudes have been encoded into them at the root. So that's an important book, and I I think we'll hopefully be hearing more from James in... uh, wild resistance going forward i i do hope to reach out to him and uh make more from that and you'll you'll be seeing a bit more about that 
if you follow up on my writing, which hopefully you are. If you're willing to listen to an hour and seven minutes so far of me talking about books, I'm just going to go ahead and trust that you uh probably willing to entertain reading something of mine. So forgive the hubris, but uh, I shall assume that you've probably read something I've written or two. Carry on. Let's do a little palate cleanser from technology and talk about some ecology books. And let's start with some good ones. All right. A little bit of a, a side shoot here, but Paul Rosenda's Tracking in the Art of Seeing, How to Read Animal Signs and Tracks, is a book that is, is more practical in terms of a lot of information about tracking, but there's still a lot in it that I consider worth just saying, like, you really ought to read this, and it's really good. Um, and trying to, to understand a, a better way of seeing animals in terms of how they function and what they leave behind. So he's also got another book called Wild Within, which is more of a, um, I don't know, how do you want to say, less of a practical book, um, whatever that means, uh, but more of a kind of theoretical book uh, and kind of reflections and approaches and things like that to following up with the things that he talks about in Tracking the Art of Seeing. And as far as people in the rewilding world go and people in the uh, primitive skills world go, Rosenda is pretty fucking awesome. And I, I really think that both books are good. But Tracking the Art of Seeing, to me, uh, it kind of follows in a, a pit of other books that came out roughly around the same time, kind of touching on the same things that talk about tracking in ways that are considerably different from how somebody like Tom Brown would talk about it, which is, you know, less less of just straight science and more of just a way of, of seeing, which, you know, I'm sure they might contest with some of those words and it gets complicated in terms of how all these things are framed. But, uh, you know, with, with Tom Brown, it was really about kind of building up this mystique in a way. And in, in Resendez's terms and even John Young's terms, it's, it's definitely a different way of looking at things. So it's natural to jump from Rosendo's to John Young with the Robin Nose, how birds reveal the secrets of the natural world. Now, I got some shit when I gave this a very positive review in, number, in Black and Green Review number one uh, because some of the directions that John Young has gone since this came out, particularly with the H-Shields program and some uh, new-agey kind of things. This book came out in 2012. And I don't particularly care. Uh, the book alone is, is really fucking good. I'm not saying everything John Young has done son, since is, is great or perfect, but this and the Advanced Bird Language uh, CD set, which is eight CDs of, of John speaking, is shockingly good. Um, I really liked it, and I, I think it was before he kind of, you know, if he did fully go off the deep end there, this was before all that, and I, I think this is really good, but it's really talking about how uh, there's there's a number of things that kind of come out in, in ethnographies and are kind of commonly referenced in anthropology books and books that have come out about hunter-gatherers from, you know, kind of standard perspectives that talk about the way that hunter-gatherers seem to know the world and understand it. And like, oh, well, they, they understand and read the environment in particular ways, so there must be telepathy or something like it. And in reality, it's like if you understand how how birds communicate uh, and you understand about that and you'll begin to understand how the world communicates. 
and it's a, a totally different way like tracking the artist seeing it's just a different way of seeing the world and fortunately it's very practical and i felt like uh i read this book 2014 i believe um and i kind of felt like anybody who i had recommended to got to shortcut observations that took me potentially decades to kind of figure out and he had a much better way of putting it together um so that's that's really good and then uh, another one, this is a short book, but this one's a really good one. Ian, Ian McAllister is Following the Last Wild Wolves. It's about these sea wolves that are up in British Columbia that Ian McAllister had spent years, and he's, he's a photographer. He's a wonderful photographer. Uh, he works with, or is basis of, um, uh, well, he works with Wildlife Defense League. Um, Pacific Wild, I think, is what the group is called. And you can see his photos on there if you follow any of that stuff. But this book has a lot about them. Uh, but he had a really unique kind of view compared to what a lot of ecologists have where ecologists want to learn about a species. They're just going to go radio collar them and then track them and, and shit like that. And that's fucked. And he talks about it in another book I'm going to talk about from Gabe Bradshaw talks about it. Uh, the, the impacts of of radio collaring are considerable uh and you know he, he said you know basically just take your time and get to know them as animals and get to know them as individuals and yeah it's it's really important uh in terms of perspective and in terms of laying out where he's coming from with that because that in the entire conservationist world is something that does not get tracked or does not get talked about enough, nearly enough. Uh, but he brings up a lot of other stuff in here that's really awesome. Just a quick quote here. The question to be answered is whether we should be destroying our remaining wilderness areas by building massive wind farms and damming our rivers for hydroelectricity when the power will end up keeping our air conditioners going in California. So that was awesome. He's an awesome person and that's an awesome book. Um, Coyote America, Dan Flores, another book that gets reviewed in Black and Green Review, so you can just read all about it there because I'm sure you already have a copy of it. Uh, this book is, of all the books that are out there that kind of uh, serve as biographies of an animal, this one I think is my favorite. Uh, but the chapter of War on Wild Things is one of the finest chapters to be written. Uh, since probably Shepard died. Um, it's fucking awesome. So I'm not even going to go into too much detail because I'll get tempted to read a whole bunch from it. You know, talk about an animal that is resilient and also understand a lot about ourselves and our relationship to the world because coyotes act a whole awful lot like we do. Uh, that one gets a very strong recommend. So I did get a recommendation. Somebody asking me to talk about books about trees and I know that's kind of baiting because I was sent a book about trees by that person that I have not read yet, and I apologize, but I do actually have some recommendations for books on trees. Uh, I will say Peter Wolbin's Secret Life of Trees. I think that book is really good parts. There's parts of it that are really awesome, talking about tree communication and talking about the way that trees react with each other and communities of trees versus kind of like the tree in the city, the street kid tree. Um, that stuff's really good. Uh, it's the kind of book I think you can jump around in pretty easily. 
and still get a good bid from. But John Valiant's uh, The Golden Spruce, which technically is a book about a tree, uh, but the lumber industry in general is an exceptionally well-written book and also absolutely fascinating. And I think that it's another book that, like, yeah, if you've got your you're not fond of civilization, I think you will find a lot in it. Um, it's written really well. That book was recommended to me, and I'm very grateful for it, but there's there's my tree book recommendation. In case people think I don't listen to them. World Without Us, Alan Wiseman. This book was kind of big when it came out, uh, and it, it did the rounds a little bit, but I still think it's really important. It's kind of like if humans vanish tomorrow... What would happen to the rest of the world? Um, and there's a lot of upsides to it. There's a lot of downsides to it. But it's it's one of those things where it's it's a really crucial thing to understand in terms of you know something that I, I see all the time, uh, particularly with city anarchists uh, and radicals or whatever in cities, is thinking that you know if if the power went out tomorrow, then all this shit would just kind of stick around. And it's important to remember that that's that's not how ecology works that's not how the world works i think it was even a couple of years ago in new york city there was 500 applications of of roundup within the city itself just to suppress most to suppress any kind of growth and to maintain the cities the amount of maintenance that goes into civilization is overwhelming which is one of the reasons why civilizations fall apart and why they fall apart pretty gloriously um, so that book is kind of somewhere between fantasy and and reality but you know there's there's a lot of checks that come with it and such as the fact that plastic is not going anywhere nor is the realities of uh nuclear power and anything like it but i still think it's good i think it's worth reading and worth understanding just how much goes into maintaining civilization becomes kind of apparent and seeing how it falls apart uh book that another book i reviewed and by Green Review, Carl Safina's Beyond Words. This book is 400 pages of text for endnotes, and I was genuinely disappointed when it was over because there was no more of it. Um, this book is awesome. Out of 400 pages, I think there's like two in here that I didn't really care for. Otherwise, over and over again, this book really understands what the, the subtitle of it is, What Animals Think and Feel. Um, but just understanding our relationship to other animals and also different ways about of understanding animal cognition. Um, yeah, it's just, just fucking excellent. And it's another book that if I start going through and, pile, and pulling quotes, I will end up reading nonstop. I'm not saying it's an uplifting book because it talks about our impacts on the, on the wildlife, um, but it's, it's all the more important. And naturally, following up on that, Gay Bradshaw's Carnivore Minds, these fearsome animals really are. So Gay was interviewed in Black and Green Interview number five. I am exceptionally fond of Gay. Uh, Carnivore Minds, and then she's got Elephants on the Edge, which is her previous book. When Elephants on the Edge talked about uh, PTSD amongst elephant populations as a response to uh, the, the consequences of what, what elephants go through in, in the wild, and I think this is something that increasingly needs to be paid more and more attention to is what, you know, what are the consequences of uh, civilization on, on those who survive it? 
and not just those who were killed by it. And in this book, she talks about carnivores and other obligate predators and talking about how their, what their social lives are like and giving a better understanding of, you know, just who it is and getting a better view of who it is that these, these other animals are that have to live alongside us and live with the consequences of civilization. Uh, it is, yeah, just unbelievably good. Uh, I, I'm, I always get a little overwhelmed looking at it to try and figure out which section I'm going to read, and I probably would have been reading more and more of it, but it's another one of these books that when I start picking it up and reading through it, that I'm going to uh, just read a ton and keep going. So, that said, this gets my highest possible recommendation. Her and Safina's books uh, are awesome, which, by the way, Safina's written a number of books. View from Lazy Point also I think is really good. I think Beyond Words is probably a book I agree with more in principle, but I think View from Lazy Point is a really good book. But Gabe Bradshaw, Carnivore Minds, Elephants on the Edge, you should own both books. Uh, and two other books that I think are kind of increasingly important uh, William Cronin's Changes in the Land, Indians, Colonists, and the Ecology of New England, and Alfred Crosby's Ecological Imperialism, The Biological Expansion of Europe, 900 to 1900. Uh, in terms of ecological history and understanding colonization and conquest, both of these books are really, really important. And again, books that I'd gone through for years and I kind of find myself going back to more and more and really understanding uh, how changes in the land have impacted made possible for civilization's expansion. Along these lines, Ben Goldfarb's Eager is a new book about beavers. Uh, I just finished that one up. And again, it's another one I think is really important. It has a lot of really good points to it. And it's another one of these kind of like biographies of an animal that's been coming out recently that are really well done, along with like Dan Flores's Coyote America. Uh, that I think are just really good to read and really entertaining to read in a lot of ways, but also exceptionally informative. And in, uh, in Eager, he talks a good bit about the nature of, of rivers as we kind of envision them uh, within this agrarian kind of society and talking about how we envision them like a, a fly catcher or a fly fisher would. Um, this, you know, very straight kind of streamy, this river runs through it kind of, mindset or something like that and how prior to beavers being wiped out in the earliest stages of conquest and fur trade all of the Americas looked entirely different because of the way that the the huge amount of beavers had been rechanneling water and even our entire idea of a river or a wild river or a wild creek or any kind of wild water uh, is massively different than it looked prior to the elimination of beaver I think that's that kind of shit to me is really important, and I'm going to kind of, kind of constantly bring it up. Anytime there is something that goes on in our lives that we impact with or, or deal with the world in radically different ways than we otherwise would, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pointing that out. So, Eager by Ben Goldfarb. All right, I'm going to do one last pile of books here, and I think this, this episode is going to end up being a two-barter because we're almost pushing an hour and a half here. And I have a massive pile of books to go through. 
Um, so if you made it this far and you don't plan on going all the way to the end and uh, you're sick of hearing book recommendations, well, don't know why you clicked on an episode about book recommendations. That was that was silly of you. Uh, but otherwise, in the meantime, if you listen to this episode and you want to hear other recommendations or you have other areas that you're interested in, uh, you can email blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And let me know what you want me to include on the second half of this episode, which ideally I will record tomorrow, but I am not making any promises. There's a... Yeah, there's a lot more books I'm going to go through. This is going... I get excited about books and talking about things like this because it's nerdy shit that not everybody wants to hear about and I spend most of my life knee-deep in it. So if you guys want recommendations and you want to hear about books, well, you're going to hear it. Um, so one of the requests I got was a book about substance abuse and addiction. Uh, so I wrote an essay called hooked on a feeling and that is in gathered remains and it's also in black and green review number three and it's talking about addiction and domestication the number one book that i come across that talks about this and was a huge impetus for uh when i started writing hooked in 2004 uh was this book david Courtright's forces of habits drugs in the making of the modern world that's a book that came out in 2001 unparalleled in terms of the history of drugs and domestication. Uh, and yeah, I, I strongly recommend it. I've been recommending it for a long time and there's a whole lot in it that he got right. Um, that, yeah, I still don't think many people have, have touched. Uh, and it's been, it's been very important for me and my copy of it is heavily marked for some reason, very stained. Um, but yeah, this is really good. Uh, I will say Andy Lecter's Shroom. Uh, it was a book I read. It's been quite a while since I read it, but I, I thought it was a particularly good one in, in line with like the biographies of a certain thing, but also in terms of kind of deflating the ideas that, uh, you know, the the food of the gods kind of shit and Timothy Leary shit about uh, the origins of humanity coming from psychedelics um, and kind of deflating a lot of that stuff. Uh, so, moving on to the last subject I'm going to cover tonight, which is uh, health kind of stuff. I don't know how to put that better. Uh, so, these books are incredibly important. Uh, in fact, all the ones I picked are, are ones that, two of them were ones that are considered or were considered pretty important ones to have in that kind of anti-sims classics category. Uh, and we're regularly making the rounds. And then two more recent ones, but I'm going to start with Nora Gigados. Uh, Nora is fucking amazing. Primal Body, Primal Bind. Um, this book deserves to be considered straight up anti-civ, and I personally owe this book a lot. In um, talking about how the brain functions, and talking about how the body functions, and running off of fat instead of running off of sugar and glucose is a huge part of understanding the impact civilization has had on our health, and also how civilization has, and agriculture in particular, have, you know, targeted and, and turned domestication into a diet, into a way of making us kind of physically and mentally dependent upon this constant implor, like, uh, this constant need for glucose. Uh, but she's 
been very comfortable in the anti-civ world and the paleo primal world as, as well um but yeah this book is really well done she's exceptionally well backed up on everything she has to say and she's very thorough there's a lot of interviews with her on uh some podcasts and things like youtube and some new documentaries have come out but i still think of everything she's written primal body primal mind is an exceptionally important book and i would consider it necessary reading uh check out that interview with her in black and green interview number five tell me i'm wrong try dare you all right uh newer one Barbara Ehrenreich's Natural Causes is an epidemic of wellness, the certainty of dying and killing ourselves to live longer. Uh, so uh, Ehrenreich has written a lot of stuff that tends to kind of float into the, the liberal realm and everything like that, but it, it's a lot of it's really good. Uh, particularly this book and Dancing in the Streets, um, they kind of take the, the baseline as how we lived as hunter-gatherers and then how we've wound up in the conditions that we're in and the, the dismal aspects of it. And there's parts of this book that, you know, I don't agree with. Um, I write more about it in Wild Resistance number six. But uh, in terms of how the book is written, uh, you know, the, the idea of civilization is always like, well, we get we live longer. And as Nora is regularly going to point out, we don't. And in fact, as she mentions in her interview, the, the average life expectancy at 1900 was th- was 30, which is considerably less than what most hunter-gatherers lived. Uh, but natural causes, Barbara gets the perspective of like, you know, I've hit a point in my life where I just have to accept that I'm going to, to die sooner than later. And instead of spending the rest of my life doing all these totally unnecessary things to prolong it and make it look like, you know, a civilization's functioning and keeping me miserable and making me live longer, I'm just going to accept that I'm not going to spend the rest of my life trying to live longer and just live better. Uh, and that makes it unique, and she's got a really good voice in her writing. Uh, but I think this book is really good and kind of a good follow-up to these other books and Nora's books in, in different ways. She doesn't get into dietary stuff as much. Mark Nathan Cohen's Health and the Rise of Civilization, Weston Price's Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. Um, the Cohen book definitely was making the rounds pretty considerably and talking about domestication, disease, and the impacts of agriculture on the body. It's a considerably larger book on site, uh, 142 pages of text, and then... Uh, over 130 pages more just of the citations and everything. So if it looks a little more daunting for some reason or academic, which it isn't, but it's, it's well backed up, is a quicker read than it looks. Uh, again, another good book. Weston Price's book is pretty massive, but Weston Price was a dentist who in... Um, I think it was like the 1910s or 1920s, kind of realized that he kept seeing the same issues with tooth decay uh, with all of his patients and kind of got to the point where, well, you know, this can't be the way that we've always been. It doesn't make sense that the human body evolved in a way that caused it so that we were continually having these things. So he went on around the world to document uh, health, in particular tooth and dental health, for all different kinds of societies and what he found was people who lived 
like a more indigenous diet, particularly um, hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists, had perfect teeth. And the people who had been hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists had been settled in missions or in settlements where they had been given access to modern canned and sugary foods very immediately started to see massive issues with tooth decay and massive issues with dental uh, malformations and changes in the way the skull works. There's a lot of ethnographic information in these too, and, and not these, but this book as well. And I think it's really good and it's, it's written in a way that's very easy to get through. This is a large book, but it's a very, very good book and I do strongly recommend it. Uh, the Weston Price Foundation, however, eh, I don't know. Um, they they don't follow up on on what I consider to be a lot of Weston Price's work as well as as I believe that they probably think they do, but they end up promoting a lot of things like a you know dairy and fermented wheats and things like that. And there's been Sally Fallon, who's the, kind of the head of the the Weston Price Foundation and spiritual or dietary leader, whatever she, you want to consider her. Um, she has been insanely adverse to things like ketosis and uh, particular paleo diets and primal diets and things like that uh, for reasons I would say are pretty nonsensical. Uh, which, going back to Nora, who's been promoting a primalogenic diet, which is paleo, uh, like a very conscious kind of, uh, sourcing about meats and things like that with uh, paleo and fat-based instead of carb-based or anything like that. She's, everything that she has to say is is infinitely better than what Sally Fallon has said, particularly even in relationship to Wesson Price's information. So as far as that goes, Wesson Price's work is really important. Wesson Price's book is excellent. Wesson Price Foundation just go ahead and pass it up. Go straight to Nora. She's got much better information, and also Nora takes it from the perspective of, you know, we're not we're not just living in a wild world where there's no toxins and things like that. Um, you know how to how to eat in a way that honors the hunter gatherer body that we've all inherited, but also trying to recover from civilization itself. Which, if you're listening to this podcast and you made it this far, you will probably immediately recognize as a big bonus point for recommending your books. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and end it there. So we'll call this part one and then hopefully tomorrow. So if you have other areas that you want me to cover, and there are a lot that I have not covered yet, uh, do email me at blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Uh, again, if you like what we do, support the podcast, support the books, strongly recommend going to primalanarchy.org and hitting on the donate buttons. There's PayPal, Patreon, support our work. Blackandgreenreview.org has all the books on it currently. Call of Personality, the ebook is available now. Gathered Remains is available now. The book of Call of Personality will be available uh, in weeks, uh, and you can pre-order it there. And we will have more information on Wild Resistance number six uh, very, very soon. Uh, as soon as as soon as I finish up all the layout and everything else with it. Uh, so thank you for listening, and I will talk to you later. Thanks.